Good morning, First Pineville. Welcome to worship today. He is our only king, and we sing to him together. Why don't we stand and sing and lift high the name of the Lord? Our God and firm foundation, our rock, the only solid ground, nations rise and fall. Kingdom comes from our shaken, we trust forever in your name, in the name of Jesus. 
seated. We're so glad that you're here today. Welcome to First Pineville. We are delighted that you've made the choice to be in this house of worship today because this is where the name of the Lord will be praised. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you're new with us, we are really glad that you're here. Take a worship guide. On that last panel, there's a perforated card. We call it a connection card. Would you just take a few minutes and fill out the information that's called for, and then when the offering plate is passed a little bit later in our service, place that card in there. It just helps us get to know you a little bit better. And if we can pray with you, pray for you, pray about you, pray over you, would you just turn that card over and fill out those prayer requests? Our staff prays over those cards every Tuesday afternoon at 1.30. And what a privilege it is to be able to do that. And that is such a sweet time in our staff meeting every week. Again, we are glad that you're here today. We're going to sing to the Lord Jesus today because he is our king and he is the king forever today. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we are grateful today for your love, for your truth. And we are grateful that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And that you never fail. You will not fail me now. You won't fail me in the waiting. You are the same God who's never late and is working all things out. You're working all those things out. And, Father, we say to you today, yes, I will. So, Father, speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear, a receptive heart, as we hear the preaching of your word and we lift high your praise today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's my privilege this morning to uh, recognize our largest ministry group here at First Baptist, and that's our Sunday school leadership. Um, it's the group that's responsible for taking this large group that we call First Baptist and helping it seem more like family. And so we want to say thank you to them today. And as we look through the roles of our preschool leaders and children's leaders, youth and adults, that's over 100 people who serve somewhere every Sunday through our Sunday school ministry. And some of you may be saying, what do all those people do, right? And so thank you. Okay, some of you just confirm that. All right. Well, we challenge them to focus on three things, and that is to reach people for Christ, to teach people, and to minister to people. So let's look at those. First, our outreach leaders, we've asked them to encourage us to share the gospel with those that we come into contact with and encourage us to invite others to Sunday school and this worship service. And since August 11th, which began our new Sunday school year, this group has led us in enrolling 56 new members in our Sunday school. The second group is our care group leaders, and these are the ones that help us minister to one another. And just a few things that I know that they have done since that time is organize meal trains for parents with new babies and for those who've had surgeries. They've made phone calls and written letters of encouragement. They sat at the hospital while others are having surgery and they provided funeral meals. And my guess is there's a whole lot more that I don't have a clue about. And they lead us to do that every week. And the final group is our teachers. Week in and week out, they prepare lessons to share God's word with us so that we can grow in Christ. And since the new Sunday school year, if you put all those people together, that's 468 Bible studies that they have led in those small groups. And my guess is, there's way more than that because at the ball field and the grocery store line and in the hallways of this church, there are more lessons that are shared amongst each other. And again, some of you are thinking, okay, we average on just under 400 in Sunday school every week and we average just over 400 in this worship service every week. So does it really take one person for every four? And the short answer is no. Because beginning since August, that time in August, we've had over 700 different people come through Sunday school. So that means if we all showed up on the same day, there's 700 of us in Sunday school and worship on that day. They're keeping up with all of those and individuals that have never even been to Sunday school that they minister to weekly. I thought it'd be fun if we asked everybody, how long have you served in a Sunday school ministry? And so almost everybody answered. So all these numbers could go up a little bit. But those who have served for Sunday school in any church, in any position, it's over 2,000 years of service. And half of that has been right here at First Baptist. We have experience leading. But I think what's exciting is our, our longest tenured here at First Baptist is 60 years, and our shortest, and this are two or three like this, it's three months. They started serving this year. We run the gamut. So we want to say thank you to all of you who help with that. And you'll have noticed some of them have a little tote bag we gave them today as a symbol of saying thank you. But if you serve in Sunday school in any way, teacher, outreach leader, inreach leader, you take the role, all of those positions, 
department directors, would you stand so we can say thank you for leading us today? Stand on up. There should be a fourth of y'all. Come on. There you go. Now, congregation, I'm just going to say this because, you know, sometimes things just come out of my mouth. That applause was pretty weak for everything we just said they did. All right, so can we thank them for their service? Kevin. Thankful for what we learn in Sunday school and how the Lord teaches us. We learn that our God is holy. Amen. Let's stand together and sing to that God today.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for so many things, the things you've done for us. Lord, but especially the grace that you extend to each one of us, grace and love that's so undeserving on our end, but knowing that you love, you extend to each one here. And Lord, as we feel thy presence today, Lord, we just thank you for all of these things. And Lord, as, we, as it's time to give, Lord, may each one give out of love, love from the heart for you. And Lord, may you take these gifts that we give today and Lord, multiply them that we may say we made a difference in the lives of others. For we ask these things in your name. Amen. Once was lost, I walked away. The road was dark, I could not see. My hope was gone, the pain was real, but your mercy. You saw my steps, you felt my fears, you heard my cries, you caught my tears, arms open wide, you ran to me with your mercy. Your mercy, your mercy, I stand before my King and bow my heart to sing. You saved me, you raised me, you died so I could live, no greater love than your mercy you gave me life beyond the grave my deepest shame is cast away you sing a covers me it's your mercy your mercy your mercy I stand before my king and bow my heart to sing you say
loving kindness leads me to repentance. Your loving kindness leads me to repentance. Lord, let your kindness lead us to repentance. Lord, let your kindness lead us to Should gays be allowed in the military? That was the hot topic in the summer of 1993 while as a soon-to-be senior in high school, I attended a week-long event called Presidential Classroom in Washington, D.C. And during the week, we uh, toured various attractions in D.C. We heard presentations by different uh, government leaders, and we spent a large part of our time in our small group discussing topics of the day. And it was in those discussions, especially the one about gays in the military, that I realized our culture was changing. In this session, my Bible Belt bred self decided to speak up. Uh, I thought I had the word on homosexuality in general, regardless of the issue at hand. I thought that when I spoke, it would be a, what we didn't call then, drop the mic moment. Well, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> when I finished speaking, most of the students either stared at me or looked at me like I was nuts and went right on talking. On the bus later that day, a girl from Ohio said something like, Stuart, I appreciate your passion, but you're wrong. And I really didn't know how to respond. I, 
I may not have held her opinion politically. Frankly, as a 16-year-old, I didn't know how to deal with that issue politically, and I don't think she did either. But I wasn't wrong biblically. However, the discussion in her comment helped me realize that the world was changing. Later, in 1993, the Department of Defense Directive 1304.26 was issued, and then in February of 1994, the Clinton administration issued the policy that became known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which opened the door for closeted LGBT individuals to serve in the military. Well, culture continued to change. Until 2011, when the Obama administration repealed the Clinton-era policy, and Obama's repeal allowed LGBT members to serve in the military regardless of whether they were closeted or not. Now, whether we agree with the changes in the military or not, the changing military is a mirror of what has happened in our culture. The last 25 years have brought rapid change regarding homosexuality, and gender issues. Not only has military policy changed, but same-sex marriage has been legalized, and we have seen an increased proliferation of homosexual themes and characters in television, movies, and advertising. We have seen a rampant increase in gender dysphoria among people, especially our teenagers. Gender dysphoria, for those who don't know, is a condition where a person feels their biological sex does not match their gender identity. So while biologically male or female, these people may identify as either the opposite gender than what their biology says, both genders, or no gender whatsoever. Today, almost every family is touched by homosexuality or one of the many linked issues either through a family member, a family friend, or some sort of relation like a doctor or a teacher or some other men member of the community. And therefore, this is an issue to which we need to speak because the lines between male and female have been blurred, so we need some help in managing this grayness. Now, this topic has become broad and confusing. It goes far beyond mere homosexuality, and I kind of shudder at the fact that I just said mere homosexuality, but that's because the issue has gotten so broad. What else do you say when this group has now grown into at present at least the LGBTIQCAPGNGFNBA movement? That stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, questioning, curless, asexual, pansexual, gender nonconforming, gender fluid, non-binary, and androgynous. I had to look up a lot of those words. And when I did look up those words, I ran into even more terms, the definitions of which were rather fluid themselves. Because this issue has become so confusing, it isn't complicated, it's just confusing. I want to break it down to three questions for our purposes today. One, why has this issue, issue grown as it has? What should we know biblically and how can we respond lovingly? Um, I'll admit from the start that some in our society would discount this message, even though they shouldn't. Some may even call it hate speech, even though it isn't and certainly isn't intended to be that way. This message is not also, it's also not homophobic. 
I have no fear of people in the LGBT plus community. I do have a fear for them because what they are seeking in the confusing alphabet soup of sexuality could be found in a true and meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you in this room today are, or who are watching online are struggling or have struggled with this issue. Uh, maybe you're struggling personally or maybe someone in your family is struggling. And I hope that you'll listen and allow the Lord to inform you and speak to you today as we pull together different truths of Scripture, different truths we know, and try to answer these questions. The first question we need to address is how do we get there? Why, how do we get here? Why has this issue grown? And I found at least three reasons for the increase in growth, though there may be very many more. And the first one is a decline in faith. And all three of these are going to be related. Um, surveys tell us and observation confirms that there has been a decline in faith over the last several de decades. Drive around any city, even our own, and you will see churches that used to be full of people that are now virtually empty or are empty and shuttered. While other churches may have sprung up, the percentage of unchurched people in society has still continued to decline. And obviously, going to church doesn't make a person a true believer or even indicate that he is. However, true believers participate in local churches. So if local churches are emptying, then true believers must be declining. An April 2019 Gallup survey revealed that U.S. church membership is down sharply in the past two decades. This study actually asked, do you happen to be a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque? Now, obviously, those three groups are radically different from each other, but the results of the question are quite telling. U.S. church, synagogue, or mosque membership was 70% or higher from 1937 through 1976, falling modestly to an average of 68% in the 1970s through the 1990s. But the past 20 years have seen an acceleration in the drop-off with a 20 percentage point decline since 1999 and more than half of that change occurring at the, with the, since the start of the last decade. This decline has largely come about because of two reasons. One, of a growing group of people claim to have no faith whatsoever, and that group now makes up about 35% of the American population. Second, church membership among the religious has fallen nine points. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that where there is a decline of faith, there is a rise in sin. That just makes sense, but we can see it in our culture. As church membership has fallen dramatically over the last 20 years, the acceptability and promotion of sin of all kinds has risen equally dramatically. Think about the military example earlier. Again, whether you agree with it politically or not, we went from one extreme of banning gays to one, the other extreme of opening the door wide in the space of 18 years. In those same 18 years, church attendance fell by approximately 10 points. As faith has declined in America, sin has risen. We in the church, though, have only ourselves to blame for that. And we can talk about why that is at another time. 
But the good news is the truth of Romans 5, 20 to 21. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though sin is on the rise and church membership is on the decline, grace is ever on the rise. God can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime if we will turn to him and we will trust him. He can transform any life. He can change any heart. So may grace abound in our day to bring about righteousness. The second reason that I think we've seen this increase is related to the first, but that is a breakdown of the family. As faith has declined, the family unit has suffered. Did you know that every 13 seconds a divorce occurs in America? That means over the space of this worship service, 277 divorces will occur. That would be like 60% of us in attendance today walking out and getting a divorce right after this service. From the late 1800s through the 1960s, divorce rates rose Steadily, not dramatically, but steadily. But in the 1970s, divorce rates took a big jump, likely because for the first time, couples had the option of a no-fault divorce. It was also the first time a spouse could cite irreconcilable differences as the reason for the divorce. Prior to the 1970s, anyone wanting to end a marriage had to prove adultery or a cruelty in marriage. While divorce rates then leveled off a bit in the 1990s and had even seen a slight decrease of late, they are still very high. And I would suspect that every family has been touched by divorce in some way or another. So much divorce in the last 40 to 50 years has resulted in many single-parent homes and numerous blended families. As more people lack a model of a traditional family, made up of one loving mom and one loving dad, committed to each other for life, corresponding confusion has grown over the definition of a family and the roles of men and women. The breakdown of the home has also contributed to an increase, or may have also contributed to an increase in sexual abuse, which is also a precursor to those who struggle with gender-related issues in many different times. For young boys especially, but also for girls, a disconnection with dad has caused gender role and confusion. This has happened both in single-parent homes where dad is not around, as well as traditional families where dad is always at work or always chasing his hobbies. Further, as dads have stepped away from their God-assigned role as spiritual leaders, the faith of families has declined. Our children will do what we do not what we say. We are where we are in culture because of a decline in faith that has led to a breakdown in the family that has also led or opened up the way for a third reason, and that is promotion in society. A timeline by public television indicates that the gay rights movement began struggling into existence as early as 1924. In those days, it didn't gain much traction and, oddly enough, failed due to political pressure. But by the end of the 1950s, 
The multiple attempts to gain acceptance began working in certain parts of the U.S. Then, as a new generation of Americans tried to find their way out from under the shadow of their World War II-era parents, homosexuality gained further ground in the 1960s and 1970s. In 1962, Illinois repealed its sodomy laws, becoming the first U.S. state to decriminalize homosexuality. In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its list of mental illnesses. Throughout the 70s, homosexuality gained larger acceptance in places like San Francisco, and the decade ended with a 75,000-people march in Washington, D.C. for lesbian and gay rights. In the 1980s, the AIDS epidemic began in the gay community but quickly spread outside of it, and the epidemic raised awareness in sexually transmitted diseases, but it also resulted in the promotion of so-called safe sex, which silently encouraged greater promiscuity while promising to remove the consequences of it. The 1990s saw a steady move to greater acceptance. Some progress was made to stem the tide, especially with the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as a, a union between one man and one woman. But the homosexual agenda still gained ground. By 2000, Vermont became the first state in the U.S. to legalize civil unions and registered partnerships became between same-sex couples. In 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that sodomy laws in the U.S. are all unconstitutional. This last decade has seen a rapid increase in the prevalence of homosexuality and gender issues with new government policies being made and old government policies being struck down in favor of homosexuality. In addition, through much of the last 30 years especially, television and movies have been used to normalize homosexuality in society. In the 1980s through the early 90s, we were encouraged to laugh at homosexual characters as they made cameos at first in popular television shows and then became lead characters in later sitcoms and dramas. In the last 10 to 15 years, we have seen such a rise in homosexual characters on television and in the movies and even commercials that we might think that every third or fourth person is homosexual or one of its related issues. In fact, surveys indicate that many people in America think that as much as 23% of the population is homosexual. In reality, it's only 3%. This promotion of the homosexual agenda over the last couple of generations of Americans has anesthetized the younger generations to the sin and has caused it to become normalized. Now, what largely began as an outcry for acceptance has become a flood of sexual perversion and confusion. Consequently, we are where we are. It is what it is, but it's not a good place to be. So the question, what should we know? Well, here are some truths which I think inform us on this issue. First, we must use the Bible in the right way. I found three primary ways people have used Scripture in this debate, and unfortunately, all of them are wrong. First, some people use Scripture as a club to beat up on people. Instead of speaking the truth in love, they speak the truth in anger. This is received as hate by the opposing side, 
and builds walls instead of bridges. And, and this obviously isn't what we need. We Christians are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're supposed to speak for Christ into his culture. We can't do that by using the Bible as a club. Second, other people have twisted Scripture to condone sin in the name of grace instead of using Scripture to confront sin with grace. Do you see the difference in that? Using Scripture to condone sin in the name of grace instead of using Scripture to convict sin with grace. There's a big difference. Scripture penetrates and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Scripture never sweeps sin under the rug. The Holy Spirit uses Scripture to pull back the rug and to say, look right there, you need to deal with this sin, and here's how you deal with it. Jesus died for that sin. You need to confess that sin, to repent of that sin, and allow the Lord to lead you from that sin. That confrontation of sin, though uncomfortable... Is loving and grace-filled. Haven't we all experienced conviction by the Holy Spirit? Haven't we all been challenged to move past some sort of sin in our life? And hasn't it been a freeing and liberating thing when we finally did? No matter our sin, we must open ourselves to loving confrontation so we may repent and grow closer to Christ. The third way people have used Scripture in the gender debate is to read into Scripture what is not there. The hermeneutical gymnastics are appalling. Perhaps the most ludicrous of the suggestions are that Jesus and the beloved disciple mentioned in John had a homosexual relationship. Or that Jesus was even bisexual, having a relationship with both Mary and the beloved disciple. Really? Can't two men... Or a man and a woman be friends without having a sexual relationship? Why does someone have to read sordid sin into pure relationships? Here's why. Because they need to justify their own actions. Much of the agenda has been for acceptance. But underneath that, desire is a hurt that's caused by sin. You'll notice that whatever acceptance is gained, it's never enough. It's never enough. The sin is always morphing. It's always expanding to include new types of sexual sin and more people who are hurting. We must not read the Bible and read into it what we want to find there. To do so is no better than a racist who tries to say the mark of Cain was that God made him black and that black skin is a curse. That was crazy hermeneutics back then, and the hermeneutics that is happening today is just as crazy. The only way we can deal with the struggles of sin in our own lives and in our culture is through a right use of God's word. We have to allow God's word to speak to us. We must open it for ourselves, and we must open ourselves to the loving and grace-filled confrontation and conviction that it offers. When you open your Bible, submit to yourself, submit the Lord to yourself saying, God, whatever is in your word that is not in me, put into me. And whatever is in me that is not in your word, get out of me. We must use the Bible rightly. We also must remember that Satan is the author of confusion. 
Satan seeks to cause chaos, disorder, and destruction. Remember, Satan is a liar. John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan seeks to make us doubt God and his word. The very first words out of Satan's mouth in Scripture are, Did God really say... If you find yourself doubting the truth of God's word, that's the enemy at work. But not only is Satan a liar, he's a schemer. He is sneaky and he is good at his lies. Paul told the Corinthian church that they needed to follow what Paul was teaching in this particular section. And in 2 Corinthians he said, we need to follow this in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the work of God. As Peter reminds us in his letter, uh, Satan is a liar. He is a devil. He is a lion who is prowling around, who's seeking someone to desire, to devour. We need, therefore, to resist him and stand firm in the faith. Satan loves to take neutral things or good things and corrupt them and confuse them. And regarding to human sexuality, that's just what he has done. He takes this God-created gift that's to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife and corrupts our sexuality into pornography, adultery, abuse, homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality, gender dysphoria, and more. Satan is lying, scheming, sneaky snake who is out to devour. Therefore, any confusion about who you are doesn't come from God, friend. It comes from Satan. First Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion. He's the author of peace, as in all churches of the saints. When it comes to issues related to LGBT plus and, and any of the other sexual sins and dysphoria, Satan is the author of confusion. He takes feelings and makes people think those are legitimate and God-given. But friends, a feeling that is outside of the Bible is not God-given. These are feelings that Satan is suggesting, that Satan is exploiting. It's no different than an alcoholic's desire for another drink, a pedophile's desire for a child, or an adulterer's desire to hook up. Feelings do not equate rightness. Beware the devil's schemes. Another thing that we need to know is that God purposefully created two sexes or genders. And I'm bringing those two words back together because they belong together. Men and women. Two different sexes that are two different genders. The debates concerning the sexes from women's lib to gender dysphoria are exhausting and ridiculous if we will go back to Genesis and believe what God says. In Genesis 2, God says... It's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2, 18. And what follows is a powerful and beautiful story of God's creation of Eve out of Adam. And there we find three simple truths about men and women. And that is that we are equally created, expertly crafted, and uniquely gifted. God made both man and woman. We are equally and purposefully created by God. There is intentionality in each sex. God expected there to be both men and women, not other things in between. 
Within those two sexes, he created men and women with differing interests and differing abilities to bring variety within the two sexes. He didn't do that to create variety between the two sexes. Likewise, God expertly crafted both men and women. He made us different physically, purposefully for procreation and enjoyment in marriage and also for the other roles that he intended. Therefore, we find that God uniquely gifted man and woman for their complementing purposes. One is not better than the other. Each is uniquely gifted and intended to work together to build up the other. And this understanding has gotten so messed up in society. And everything from those on one extreme who want a man's world where women should go home because their value is, is found there to those on the other extreme who want a woman's world that takes over the roles of men. Both extremes are outside of God's intention. And that's why both end in disaster. Men and women need each other. We need men to be men. We need women to be women. In fact, we can't fully understand ourselves individually as men or as women if we don't have each other. When God built Eve and brought her to Adam, we see God's intention. Man was to have a partner like himself in dignity, but also different from him in every way, especially on the physical level. We find that Adam immediately realized God's intention when he said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. At last, friends, God purposefully created Two sexes, men and women. We're equally created. We are expertly crafted. We are uniquely gifted for the roles God intends of us. And we will be most fulfilled and most happy when we submit ourselves to the will and purposes of God. The final question for us today is very important. How can we respond lovingly? Given that we have these core beliefs, how do we respond to friends and family members and strangers who struggle with this issue or even have fully embraced this lifestyle. In fact, I suspect we all know someone who is in this lifestyle. And, and the people we know aren't bad people. In fact, they may be great people. But just because they're a good person doesn't mean the way they are living isn't sinful. The nice homosexual sin is no more or less sinful than your sin as a nice person. It just may be more public. So how do we respond lovingly? Well, we must love the person. I'm intentionally not saying love the sinner, hate the sin. Because that puts the emphasis on the sin instead of the person. We need to begin with loving the person. We must love those who struggle with this issue as we would want someone to love us as we struggle with our own sin issues. Every one of us has sin that we must deal with daily. Most of us struggle with one or more sins more than we do other sins. And the sins that you struggle with may be different than the sins I struggle with. And it may be anything from lust to overeating to worry to materialism to lying, whatever the gamut but we struggle. So how would you want someone to confront you about your sin? Do you want someone to come up to you and say, look, you fat slob, you're a sinner. Stop eating and repent. 
While that all may be true, there's no way you'll receive that in love. In fact, you'll probably throw your double-decker cheeseburger in their face, go buy a triple-decker cheeseburger, and eat it in spite of them. So it goes with our friends and family who are caught in these sexual sins. If you just blambast them, that's going to build a wall. We have to start with simply loving the person for who they are. But then we don't stop there. We must lovingly encourage repentance. Ultimately, our goal must be to help these friends see their need for repentance and help them find freedom and satisfaction in Christ. It may take a long time, but that's where the love comes in. And we continue to work with them. We continue to point them to Christ. And when they finally do break free, the temptation to, for that particular sin may be something they fight the rest of their lives. But they can find victory in Jesus Christ. In time, we must help our friends move to repentance. We cannot leave them where they are because this is very important. Love does not equal condoning. And accepting does not equal affirming. Those in the lifestyles define loving as condoning and accepting as affirming. In fact, you can't really love me if you don't condone what I do and who I am. You can't really accept me if you don't affirm what I do and who I am. Well, we have churches in our area that are open and affirming. They do not call homosexuality a sin. They affirm it. Friends, we can be open and accepting of people without being condoning and affirming of it. Every day, we're open and accepting of people with all kinds of sin. I'm here. You're here. But we don't condone or affirm each other's sins, do we? We exist to help people, to help each other, to repent and to grow closer to Jesus. Love does not equal condoning. Acceptance does not equal affirming. Our best model is Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, another sexual sin. The religious leaders condemned the lady. They were right in pointing out the sin, but they were wrong in their approach. They weren't willing to lead her to repentance. They weren't showing her love, but contrary to them, Jesus loved the lady in her sin. Then he led her out of her sin by leading her to repentance, by showing her love and saying, I don't condemn you, but now go and sin no more. He didn't say, oh, don't worry about that sin. Just go ahead. If it feels good, it must be right. Go ahead and do it. Mm-mm. No, he loved her. He forgave her. But then he led her to repentance and a new way of life. Love and grace go a long way when it comes to sexual sin. And I think that's because it's love and grace that these people are most seeking. Friends, we live in a culture that is changing because that culture is hurting. The culture is graying because darkness is increasing. We, the people of God, must shine light into that darkness. We must live as and speak of the light of Christ in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our businesses. 
Only then will we ever see change come. Only then will someone who is hurt and confused by the enemy give us a listing in. So friends, stay the course. Those of you who have kids and grandkids you're praying for, stay the course. Keep living Jesus in front of them. Keep loving them. Keep leading them to repentance. Be genuine in your faith. Love and live for God with everything you have. And all the more as we see the day approaching. As a way of invitation today, I want to invite you to come and pray. And it may be that you yourself are struggling with, with this issue. Or it may be you have a friend or a loved one who's struggling and you want to lift them up to the Lord. And so we're opening the altar for you to come and pray for that during our invitation. But it may be also that, that you just want to come and lift up our, our culture and you see the breakdown that's happening and, and you say, Lord, I just need to pour out my soul. That there would be a break of this spiritual darkness that has come. So we open up the invitation as a time of prayer for you. We also, of course, open the invitation as a time for you to come and to be saved. The first step for all of us in following Jesus is repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus for salvation. And if you've never done that, then I'd encourage you to come today and to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It may be that the Lord's led something else, laid something else upon your heart this week and you want to come and make that decision public and we invite you to do that. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing and I hope that you'll be obedient to what the Lord is calling you to do today. Lord, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, we know that it's challenging and we know that our culture is challenging, but God, we thank you that through looking through who you are and what you've said, we see some direction for this and other issues in our day. Lord, we pray today for anyone in this room who's struggling with all of the different issues surrounding this one particular issue. And we ask God that the confusion that Satan is bringing into their lives would be broken in Jesus' name. And that, Lord, you would help them to find the direction and the truth for who they are. Lord, for those who are parents and grandparents of individuals who are struggling through this issue. Lord, some of them may have recently found out. Some of them may have been struggling for years. I pray, Lord, that they would continue to, to seek you, that they would continue to love, that they would continue to lead. And that, Lord, you would encourage them daily. Lord, help them to find each other so that they might give encouragement to one another. Lord, we know that you love us. We know that you made us who we are. But Lord, we know that we only find the full expression of who we are in you. And so Lord, be the center of our lives. Lead us and transform us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.